note to listeners, this episode contains adult content. It's June 1923, Selma, California, the raisin capital of the world. Rusty Escandarian walks through his vineyards in the verdant San Joaquin Valley. The sun has just dipped below the horizon, and it's getting dark. Walking through the rows of grapes, he feels peaceful. It's a far cry from the boisterous dinner table that awaits him at home. Rusty is 30 years old, a small, unintimidating man with a boyish face. But when provoked, a steely resolve takes hold, and an inner fierceness rises up. Rusty likes handling the smooth green berries, still warm from the sun. They remind him of his home back in Armenia. He and his parents fled years ago in 1912, getting out just before the genocide that killed his entire extended family. Once in the United States, they moved to California, where they worked as field hands while they saved enough money to buy their own vineyard. It took years. Walking the rows still fills Rusty with pride. Suddenly, a box truck turns into his row and skids to a stop, sending up a cloud of dust. Adrenaline floods Rusty's body. He searches for one of the wooden stakes they use to train the grapevines to defend himself, but the headlights blind him. Rusty hears several men come out of the truck, but he can't tell how many. His hand flails for the stake. He grasps it, but before he can pull it out of the ground, he's punched hard across the jaw. Rusty falls to the ground. Dirt gets in his mouth and his eyes. He tastes blood. Rusty struggles to stand up, but he's kicked hard in the ribs, knocking him back down. He's overpowered and outnumbered. His attackers tie his wrists, yank him to his feet, and throw him in the back of the truck. Inside, Rusty sees he's not alone. There are seven other men, all bloody with their hands tied behind their backs. They own farms nearby. He knows they all have one thing in common. They've refused to sell their crops to Sunmade Raisin Corporation. And it seems Sunmade will stop at nothing to change their minds. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. Raisins. It's hard to think of a more innocent and dissed food. The morsel that looks like a chocolate chip in trail mix, but sadly isn't. The little red boxes kids abandon in their lunchboxes or toss out of Halloween bags. Almost all of the raisins produced in the United States come from just 200,000 acres in California's San Joaquin Valley. With low profit margins and high labor costs, it's a cutthroat, insular world that pits the gargantuan Sunmade Raisin Corporation against small growers for a bigger share of a $500 million business. In our new three-part series, we look at one of the longest-running business wars in the United States. It's a tale as sordid as any gangster story, with violence, barely legal business practices, and betrayal. 
This is Episode 1, A Desperate Brotherhood. It's 1918 in Fresno, California. Wiley Giffen adjusts his jacket over his protruding stomach. At 46 years old, he's starting to put on extra pounds, but he carries it with a confidence as he struts through his brand new processing plant. It's Sunday, so the place is empty. Tomorrow is the grand opening, but in his head, he can already hear the chatter of workers as they sort and package tons of raisins. He grins to himself. It's a whole new day for raisins, and it's all thanks to him. Six years ago, the raisin industry was in the dumps. Raisins were a relatively new commodity in the United States, and consumers weren't taking to them as fast as farmers expected. Prices were dropping so low that farmers couldn't cover their production costs. Farmers started talking about forming a raisin growers collective. Other agricultural sectors like citrus were hugely successful when they did this. It allows farmers to pool their resources and negotiate higher prices than individual farmers could on their own. But all the efforts to organize raisin farmers fell apart. Raisin growers were a disparate and stubbornly individualistic group. But Wiley Giffen, an uneducated boy from Pennsylvania and the son of a preacher, found a way. First, instead of organizing the California Associated Raisin Company, or CARC, as he called it, as a nonprofit organization, as most grower collectives were, he made it a corporation. This allowed bankers, lawyers, and others in Fresno's upper class to buy stock in the corporation, giving the collective an influx of cash. With the money in hand, Giffen told growers that if 75% of the farmers joined the cooperative, he'd use the money to market raisins. Farmers signed up and Giffen made good on his promise. He hired the best ad man he could find and he came up with the perfect slogan for the raisins that Kark produces. Sun made. Griffin loves the play on words. The raisins are literally made by the sun, right? But it's spelled M-A-I-D, both for the beautiful girl on the box and to strengthen the trademark. He kind of wishes that was the name of the collective. It's better than Kark. Maybe he'll change it in the future. <laughs> That's a problem for another day. Right now, Giffen is putting his money where his mouth is. He spends $400,000 a year on marketing. Kark sends sales reps to grocery stores to talk about the wonders of sun-made raisins. And it's paying off. Raisins, once seen as a luxury, are now on shopping lists of every housewife. Sales are up, and farmers are getting double for their crops what they did before the collective. Giffen moved on to stage two of his grand plan, a processing factory. And it's in operation now. The door opens, and a balding man holding a notebook walks in. Mr. Giffen, I'm with the Fresno Bee. We have an interview scheduled, do you remember? <laughs> yes, yes, please come in. The newspaper reporter looks around the space. He runs his hand along the sorting table where the raisins are prepared and then boxed for shipment. This is a very impressive facility. Giffen can't help noticing that the reporter doesn't actually seem too impressed. So, uh, tell me, what made you decide to open this factory? Well, it was the logical next step. We have 9,200 growers with us. You know, it's the largest percentage of growers in a collective of any agricultural sector in the state, right? I do know that. Again, Giffen clocks a skeptical look on the reporter's face. 
He thought this was going to be a glowing story about the new factory. After all, it's bringing hundreds of jobs to the area. He's starting to wonder if the reporter has another agenda. But Giffen carries on. Well, the best way to move forward so we could make a profit was to cut out the middlemen and start packing ourselves. It's complete vertical integration. It may be cold-blooded, and uh, I feel for the packing houses. They are losing a good deal of business. 75% of their business, I hear. Right, but it's my job to raise profits for growers, and this was the way to do it. Mm-hmm. I heard one wholesaler describe Kark as the most airtight monopoly he'd ever met. Giffen laughs. Now he knows what this reporter's problem is. He's one of these men who's skeptical of monopolies. But Giffen thinks America's obsession with that is misguided. He believes the power of individualism is a myth. The best way to get ahead is to unite and take total control. They may call us a monopoly or trust, but we're a benevolent one. He believes that growers who don't join the collective are ruining it for everyone else. And the best way to make money for everyone is to have complete control of all aspects of growing and selling raisins. The more monopolistic, the better. But the U.S. government doesn't see it that way. It's 1923 and Rusky Eskandarian walks with his wife and three boys to the annual Raisin Festival in the town center. It's a big to-do. There's live music, dancing, competitions. One of his sons walks ahead, a violin case in his hand. Hurry up, Dad. I told Petey I'd meet him at the stage at 3 o'clock so we could tune up together. And Petey is never in tune. But as Rusty comes to Courthouse Park, he slows down. He sees thousands of farmers gathered, grim looks on their faces. You go ahead, son. I'm going to stay here and listen to what Mr. Merritt has to say. Isn't he the new head of Sunmade? Yep. I thought we hated Sunmade. Rusty and his wife both hush him and look around nervously. It's not safe to say that in public. There are rumors that night Riders, gangs of Sunmade affiliates, are targeting independent growers, coercing them to join. Rusty quietly tells his son, Even if we were independent, what happens to Sunmade affects us all, okay? It's important that we know what's going on. He splits off from his family and joins the other farmers in the park. It's packed. Rusty estimates that there must be a few thousand people here. After a moment, a thin, severe-looking man steps up to the podium. It's Ralph P. Merritt, the new head of Sunmade. The crowd watches him dubiously. He has a finance background, and he's worked in cattle and rice, but he's never worked with raisins. The crowd grows silent. As you know, we are in a time of crisis. The old Sunmade Corporation was found to be in violation of United States antitrust laws. Rusty shifts uncomfortably and stays quiet. Merritt continues. Fortunately, Congress stepped in and passed a law that allows grower collectives to set prices. But they have new rules that we need to follow. The most important one is that we need 85% of you to sign up in order to be considered a collective. We have one month to reach this goal. Can we do it? If Sunmade fails, this entire region fails. Don't let that happen. The crowd begins to disperse. Rusty heads out to meet his family at the festival. As he's leaving, a Sunmade employee approaches him. 
waving a contract. Can I get you to sign this? Rusty tenses. As survivors of the Armenian genocide, Rusty's parents instilled a strong sense of independence in him. They told him, don't depend on anyone else. But Rusty's objections to Sunmade are more than philosophical. It's about economics. Before it distributes profits to farmers, the collective extracts fees for marketing and the cost of damages if smaller growers fail to deliver the harvest they promised. And that could be ruinous for a small farm like Rusty's. He'd rather take his chances negotiating with the few independent packers that are left. I'm going to hold off. As Rusty walks away, he can feel the man's eyes narrowing and boring into him. He tries not to show his fear, but he knows there's now a target on his back. A few weeks later, Rusty finds himself tied up in the back of a truck with other sun-made holdouts. After what feels like an hour, the truck finally stops. The door opens. The sun-made men grab the farmers roughly, throwing them out of the truck. Let's go, up against that tree, now. He kicks the man next to Rusty to emphasize his point. The farmers are tied to a fig tree. Rusty stares at the men pushing them around. Their blonde hair and blue eyes are in stark contrast with the ethnic features of the farmers they've tied up. Scandinavians and Armenians have both been in the valley since the late 1800s growing raisins. But where the Scandinavians were welcomed by the upper crust with open arms, the Armenians were not. One of the sun-made men cracks a whip with one hand. He holds up a contract in his other. All you have to do is sign your raisins over to Sunmade and all this will be over. None of the farmers move. The man with the whip sighs. I guess we're doing this the hard way, huh? The whipping begins. Rusty looks the man right in the eye as the whip slashes Rusty's legs and torso. He won't give him the satisfaction of wincing. One by one, the farmers around him give in. They sign the contracts. When they get to Rusty, he too signs, but he has a trick up his sleeve. He makes sure to get as much of his blood as he can on the paper. What is this? We can't turn in a bloody contract. Let it go, we have enough signatures for tonight. Rusty manages a small grin. He may be bloody and beaten, but he is still an independent farmer. Rusty survives the night, and he never signs with Sunmade. He ekes out a living as an independent raisin farmer until his death in 1962. For 40 years, Sunmade's power will be unmatched. But in the 1960s, one unlikely farmer will dig in his heels and he'll challenge Sunmade's hold and shake up the raisin industry. I'm sorry, boys, we can't go a penny higher. It's 1966, and Ernie Bedrosian and his brothers Kenneth and Krikor are sitting in the office of a Sunmade executive. 
Ernie is a charismatic man who started attending Raisin board meetings when he was in college at Fresno State. He has a deep passion for the raisin business, but today, he hates it. They've been here for hours trying to negotiate a price for this year's crop. Their farm is independent, but Sunmate has started buying additional raisins from independent farmers to boost output at their packing house. Ernie tries again to get the price he needs. At $240 per ton, we won't break even. We need $250. The exec shrugs. It's take it or leave it time. If you don't want this deal, I have growers waiting to meet with me who will. The brothers exchange a look. $240 per ton will mean their margins are tight, but as just one small farm, they don't have a lot of leverage. As the biggest buyer, Sunmade effectively sets the price. Reluctantly, the brothers agree. On the drive back to the farm, they're demoralized. Every year, the negotiations get more difficult. They never know what price they're going to get or even when they'll get paid. It all feels out of their control. In the back seat, Ernie stews. We wouldn't be in this position if we had a raisin bargaining association. All of us independent growers could unite and set a price. Sunmade couldn't undercut us. In the front, Ernie's brothers exchange a look. This is not the first time Ernie's raised this point. He's been talking about it since college. Kenneth sighs. Are you going to tell us about the tomato growers again? Their prices rose 200% after they formed a bargaining association. Why can't we do that? Because you couldn't get a group of raisin farmers to agree on where to have dinner. You're never going to get enough of them to join a bargaining association. Not enough for it to have any power anyway. Creeker agrees. The raisin farmers who are still independent now want to stay independent. They stood up to the Knight Rider thugs. They're just not joiners. Ernie looks out the window. They're passing another packing plant. Outside, he sees men he knows from a nearby farm. They're picketing, demanding a higher rate from the packing plant. I don't know. I think things are different now. I think it's time. With permission from his brothers, Ernie takes the next year off from the farm and spends it organizing what will become known as the Raisin Bargaining Association, or RBA. It's slow going, but Ernie is able to use his natural charisma, Armenian heritage, and deep knowledge of the business to convince people to sign on. He's tireless. He sets a target of how many tons of raisins he needs to have leverage. He organizes district meetings. He makes personal contact with growers. He works with the state government to establish them as an official association. And he makes progress. Finally, in February 1967, he drives up to one of the last farms. Adrenaline pumps through his veins. This farmer was one of the last holdouts, but Ernie was able to earn his trust. He's indicated he's ready to sign. Ernie just hopes he hasn't changed his mind in the half hour it's taken him to drive over here. Ernie takes a deep breath and knocks on the door. The tall, dark-haired man opens the door. Hi, Ernie. Hi, so you ready to do this? Yeah, I guess. I still feel like my dad is going to roll over in his grave. And <laughs> Well, times change. I know our people like to stay independent, but 
What's the point of independence if we can't make a living? The man nods. You're right. Ernie presents a contract and a pen. The man signs his name. Mark Eskandarian. He's Rusty's son. Ernie grins wide. He's done it. With Mark's signature, he has nearly 2,000 farmers signed up. The RBA represents farmers growing more than 150,000 tons of raisins. Finally, Ernie has the leverage he needs to negotiate with Sunmaid. And that fall, it's time to see what kind of money he can get for his newly unified growers. Ernie lets out a satisfied sigh as he puts his water glass on the table. He leans back in his seat. He's meeting with the Sunmate execs again, but this time, well, it feels entirely different. He has power now. Good news, boys. We are willing to improve our price from last year to $242 per ton. Nope, I'm sorry. The RBA has set the price at $307 per ton. We just can't go below that. And when I say we, to be clear, I mean 80% of the independent growers in the area, you understand. The executive puffs out his chest. Well, perhaps we need to continue these conversations with the growers who are not in the RBA. Ernie sees through his bluff. Uh, Sure you can do that. If all you need is 12,000 tons of raisins. Because that's all they have. The executive grows pale. He has no option but to accept the RBA's price. In 1967, its first year in existence, the RBA gets a 28% price increase for its members. But more importantly, it gets a win against SunMade, something that was unthinkable for years. And that threatens SunMade's control over the market. For now. But SunMade still has some tricks up its sleeve. On the next episode, California raisins face a new competitor from overseas. The RBA overplays its hand, and SunMade fights to reestablish its dominance. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes, and if you tap or swipe over the cover art, you'll see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. And tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but the dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Austin Rackless wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.